Howard Lindzen is the founder and general partner at Social Leverage. All opinions expressed by Howard and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Social Leverage or Stock Twits. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. Guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Yep. We're back. K Nut. How we? Knut. How you doing, man? Just give me an interesting Norwegian anecdote. <laughs> Thanks for prepping me on that one. Why should I prep you? It's a fucking podcast. No one's listening. Podcast. No one's listening. Take anyone. your time. Quiet. Oh, uh, yeah. Remember that one? A, no. No, okay. We'll talk about it later. <sighs> it's after a great all language. Fair. How do you say goodbye? Hada. Hada? That's a terrible word. All right. What about dude? Dude. Okay. Dude is a dude is a word. We uh, have a really good friend now coming on. This guy creates panic. Meaning hedge funds used to be so scared of Herb Greenberg. So Herb Greenberg used to just with the street.com in the old days. They brought him out of San Francisco Chronicle when news mattered, when research really was good. And Herb was like the most hated guy. This guy had the ability to just take everyone's hate because he was he was research. He just was after fraud okay. in, in the market. So he just, he has thick, thick skin. And uh, lives in San Diego. He's coming out of the other side of a open heart surgery. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Put some stuff in perspective for people. This guy's been through the, the ringer. But through it all, he has great hair. Uh, really fantastic hair. We'll go from Jeff Mackey, who's been shaving his, his head since he was 24, to Herb Greenberg, who, who uh, looks like he's 14 years old with his head of hair, and he's got to be in his 60s. So uh, I'd only talk to Herb once in a while, but we eat falafel together. He has a good sense of humor and very thick skin, seen every side of the market. So for young people who don't know this name, he is uh, unfortunately kind of off the grid a little bit, working on uh, bigger ideas and research, but uh, used to be in the mix on social media as it started. But first, Manscaped sent us some copy, another portfolio company. Let's get into it. They wrote copy just for me. I want you to take a second and look down. When was the last time you shaved your junk? Been a while, don't lie. Manscaped holds you accountable to get rid of the funk and shave your junk. Grooming is essential nowadays, but I know a lot of you are hesitant to manscape. You're afraid you may cut yourself, which is understandable. That's why this revolutionary company has redesigned the electric trimmer. Their lawnmower 3.0 features a cutting edge ceramic blade to prevent manscaping accidents so this trimmer won't nick or snag your skin. Take my advice, Canute, and everybody out there. Go to manscaped.com. That's M-A-N-S-C-A-P-E-D.com. Try the lawnmower three. If you can't spell it, just fucking email me because a lot of my readers can't, listeners can't spell because they're so used, they grew up on the internet. And use the code social leverage. Uh, that's our, our, our fund's firm name, social leverage, one word, for a 20% discount and free shipping. Try it out. It's a great gift, too. Great gift for your kids. The kids all know the term lawnmower at this point. Um, let's get Herb on the phone right away. Let's talk. March 25th. Let's talk panic. Hey. Herbie. How are you? Howie. Hey, buddy. How's everything going? I'm doing great. I'm kind of excited to talk to you because I the lead in here for all the young stock twits and listeners of mine and nieces and nephews and friends and relatives is you've been around since like before the Quotron. Forever. Forever. Are you, 
in the mid-60s? Uh, late 60s, 67. 67. I haven't seen it in a few years, but uh, I see yeah. it on the web. And uh, this is a, a series I put together. Fred Wilson was just on. He says hello. Right. I, uh, I, I heard that. It was very okay. good. Okay. Really Fred is really kind of like you. He's just an old school, seen everything. And if there's somebody yeah. else besides Fred that's really, if Fred's not into the market, you are, uh, who's just seen every behavior known to man, it's mm-hmm. you. And so I was hoping to just dig deep for these young viewers who are seeing maybe the biggest panic of all time. And for, yeah. for very good reasons. And you've seen some panic. So I'd love to just historically go through a few of them with you. Well, I think this one. You well, know, hang on, hang on. Sorry. So you're okay with that? Yeah. You're okay with that. So, yeah. so before we yeah, dive yeah, in, let's, yeah. l- let's yeah. uh, introduce yourself. Take as much time as you want, Herb Greenberg, today and, and some background for people. Uh, so um, I, uh, in theory, should be retired, but I'm not. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have a small investment research firm with uh, three of us. Uh, it's called Pacific, Pacific Square Research. Pacific Square uh, Research. Bi- yep. Pacific Square Research. It's a short biased research firm, mm-hmm. which uh, we felt is where, where we could add value. Um, I actually did something like this with, with, with uh, another friend back in uh, 2008, 2009. Um, so uh, I felt that as my career was sort of, you know, winding down, I'd spent a career in journalism, 40 plus years in, in business journalism, mostly, mm-hmm. most of that time in business journalism, uh, you know, in a variety of different places. And my last stop was CNBC mm-hmm. and it was a very difficult. Boy, you were like the, you're like the CNN dude on Fox news at that time. That's well, the equivalent. yeah, I, I, I guess, I guess that's one way of looking at it. Howard, here's, here's the thing. I went out there with a, uh, I want to do everything right. Yeah. I've done most things in my career. The one thing I hadn't done, even though I'd been on CNBC for many years as a contributor, is I hadn't done it full time. Okay. I, many years, many years since the early days. Since, right. since, but you hadn't done it full time. Really, got it. Not full time. So I decided, you know what? There's an opportunity. Mm-hmm. They're willing to hire me. I have my shtick, my, mm-hmm. you know, short bias shtick. And they accepted that. I go out there. Okay. Yeah, and I'm, and you know, no one else was sort of doing that, mm-hmm. and they and and they hired me, and I thought, yes, I can leave San Diego, and move to the East Coast. We moved to Connecticut. Yeah, it was very bad. And oh, it, it will be it will be very fine, right? Yeah. And no sooner did I get there, and the weather was beautiful. By the sure. way, it was like San Diego, and then winter hit, and then I started asking myself. Year one, year two, year three, what am I doing this for? Why did I do this? I missed the fact that I worked at home, that I had been, you know, doing my own thing pretty much, even though it was within the confines of other organizations, you know, working with MarketWatch, working with the research firm I had, working with the street.com. But I was always working at home for the most part. Yep. And I enjoyed that. I got into my little my You little could get away with it. You come from the Chronicle and you were like set your own rules. Like you were a legend. I you were from home do, before I, anybody. Well, I wasn't working at home when I was at the Chronicle. I was working at the No, I'm saying post Chronicle, you with the street.com, you could take Kramer trusted you, you could do whatever you wanted. I went in, I actually worked in the office in New York for a while uh, when I was with the street.com. But even then I started trying to morph to work from home one day a week because you're really just sitting in front of a computer and you're doing your thing sure. and you're trying to, you know, keep up with your, uh, w- keep your momentum going. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, 
what, but what happened was interesting is that it was really odd. You know, I was at this tail end of my career. My wife wanted to come back to, uh, to San Diego. San Diego. I kind of really wanted to go back to San Diego. I realized at CNBC, I probably had peaked out. Um, but they were offering me, uh, you know, a continuation of my, of my contract. And I was thinking to myself at the time, you know, I was what, 61, 62. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, at the end of this thing, I'm going to be 65. I'll be totally out of all opportunity. And it was really a very difficult decision. And I started thinking, what are we going to do? So finally, after a lot of angst, and it was a lot of angst, Mm. I decided, you know, we're going to move back to San Diego. And I took a gig at the street.com with a newsletter. And that was weird because it was like going back in time. And it was a strange sort of experience. Plus, it was was an unmitigated disaster for me. It was a failure. The newsletter I started absolutely did horrifically. Mm. And now I'm sitting here at the very end of my career saying to myself, what the heck am I going to do? So I went out trying to find other opportunities. I had priced myself out of journalism. I talked to people, you know, at Bloomberg or wherever, mm-hmm. nobody was going to have me. And this was really a humbling experience. Hmm. I tried to uh, move myself, you know, a variety of directions, maybe into crisis PR. I figured I could be, you oh, know, someone to turn the tables. Yeah. I, I, I thought, look, I know how to, I, you know, it's like a prosecutor becoming a defense attorney. Sure. So I thought idea. maybe I'll do that. Nobody wanted to hire me. Huh. Let me tell you, I had I had burned enough bridges that no one wanted to see me. So now I'm sitting here. You know, I have this thing at the street that isn't really working too well. And I'm thinking to myself, what do I do? Now I'm hitting rock bottom. And it's after a career that was really good where people think you're doing really well, mm-hmm. still have to work for a living, and I still want to work for a living, and I believe in myself. So I I think, why can't I do this research thing again? The, the difference is last time I did it, uh, my, my partner at the time, Debbie Merritt, did all of the, the business part of it, right? And she was, she was doing the business, but I was watching her do the business part of it. And so I thought, what do I have to lose? You know, it was a home run last time. Let's try it again this time. So I contact Don Vickery, who you might, you know, you yeah, know, Don, he's a serious Don auditor. To, yeah. he, he, had co- he had co-founded Grading Analytics 25 mm-hmm. years earlier in, um, I think in Phoenix actually. And, um, he had this, you know, they had created this interesting firm, but uh, you know, 25 years down the road, it had fallen on some hard times and he was looking to do something else. And I just looked at him. We had, we had lunch and I said, Hey, you want to start a research firm? And he looked at me and he said, okay. And I said, okay. And so we started this research firm. Now I'm thinking this thing's going to be, uh, it's going to be great. I know what to do this time. I need to hire a sales guy. We're going to pay the sales guy. Well, yeah. <laughs> mistake number one, So <laughs> we're going to, we're going to take care of everybody because we've got to have good people, um, on staff. I'm going to you know, we had, we had a third partner we brought in. I had a concept in my head of what I wanted to do well, within very short order. The sales guy was sick of hearing me saying that he was the only guy making money. And so we had to, we were, we were literally a DC, a DC three plane on one engine sputtering about ready to crash. Now I'm thinking, what just happened here? We started this business. It should be doing well. Don and I have a great background and great backgrounds, great reputations. Well, no one cared about what your your backgrounds and reputations were. They wanted to know what you're doing now, what your your work was. We had to. We're in a what's tough your business. Idea? What's, your, what's your freshest idea? It's so not about what, what your had, track record was. So 
So we had to then start restarting it. So we changed salespeople. We got rid of the sales guy. At this point, I'm really, I'm like thinking I have one foot out the door. Mm -hmm. I'm actually seeking, talking to another crisis PR guy thinking maybe, maybe I've got to move and just change all this. You know, I mean, already, you know, closing in on 65 or not 60, but no, I was still in my uh, earlier 60s then. And then, because this was five years ago, six mm-hmm. years ago, and I'm thinking to myself, what are we going to do? And lo and behold, the market turned. And a sales guy came to us thinking we didn't need any help. And he said, hey, do you guys need any help? Struck a good deal with him. He brought us a number of subscribers. And the market turned. And we were able, that DC3, suddenly the second engine uh, started to started to kick in. And we started rising and the business started to move forward at that point. And it was from one of the most humbling, scary experiences to now, you know, we're five years into it. Now things are about to change again, I think. And we're, mm-hmm. the, the engine's about to sputter, <laughs> but mm-hmm. you know, so that's what I've been doing. I spent the past five years, you know, putting 24 seven into this, into this business because, uh, the way we have, it but not easy because even though you got a business, you're, but I think people are okay to pay for your ideas, even if their market's going up because they're rich from their long ideas. So yes, I think what you're saying well, when the business changes, even though you're now on the right side of the market, people just don't want to hear it. We don't know. You don't know. We, this is going to be, this is going to be something we will learn as we go forward got because it. as the market was rising, Howard, Mm-hmm. You know, post Q3, we had a bunch of them nailed. We typically have 10 names on at any given time. Got it. And post Q3, no one wanted to hear anything other than stocks were going up. Yeah. And stocks were rising fast and furiously. And I put something on Twitter in January. I was so frustrated. And I said something like, Don and I are thinking of just switching to a long, long Oh my bio. Lord, you can't say that. <laughs> How fucking! That probably went viral. Well, you know what? Here. It was it was a sign. You know, yeah, it, was it was a, a sign. sign. We were yeah. pain. When Twitter banned zero hedge, you go, oh, that's it. There's nobody left to call the end of the world. That's when the end of the world happens. But I think one of the things I've done is being able to take the journalism, which I spent all those years so doing in different incarnations, yeah. from before the internet mm-hmm. through the creation of the internet, mm-hmm. and watching. You know, it worked for good and for bad, you know, being, you know, one of the first users uh, as a journalist at Bloomberg back in the day when they were letting journalists use it for free. And, you know, it was just, it was, it was, it was a wild time. And it was, you know, I had a column, I wrote six columns, six columns a week. Sure. At the same time I was doing, I was doing television in San Francisco. I was doing radio. You were were at the same, you were an inspiration to guys like me. You were, you and Kramer. We're the fucking thing. Like Kramer does new talent. Like if you think about the street.com, that was murderers row. Kodrowski, you, that, couple, that one fat guy who was a great at tech who died in a plank or something that he was so smart. Uh, Andy Kessler. Let me tell you something. I mean, it was well, murderers was row. Yeah. Ritholtz, every writer in the world. I dreamed of, I used to well, email Kramer, go, can I write something for you? And then they had Todd Harrison. And uh, there. oh my God. They also had a bunch of great journalists. And by the for way, sure. you're talking about all of the investors, because real money, when, when real money was created, was arguably, and I was listening to Fred, Fred was sort of going there. Real money was sort of the Twitter before it was Twitter. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was trying to be this, 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 um, this real time. It wasn't trying. It fucking was. There like was a guy did. named John Krim 
who actually yeah, he was kind of the she was kind of the he was the uh, what do you call it the man like he ran the the desk he was the executive editor yeah exactly he was the executive editor. editor and so he was really smart yeah and he sort of got it going and was you know pushing it and you know we were all part of it and I was complaining I'd always complain because they'd want you to post something and I didn't want to post anything right and you know so it was but that was that newsroom had some of the greats oh, among f- journalists. Who spawned off to all Think about sorts it. of I was just starting a hedge fund in 08. Look how dumb I was. And because of this, I said, well, I can get news. I don't have to pay Wall Street Journal. I don't have to get Bloomberg. Kramer's writing from his car on a modem, right? And then they hired you. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. Why would I? I could start a hedge fund for nothing. Because these guys mm-hmm. have no interest to front. I mean, maybe they're front running me, but I trusted Kramer at the time because he was living the trade. So let me tell you something. When Jim started, when Jim told me about the street, so he just called you and my said, because he probably had to convince he, you to leave a good job at the Chronicle. No, let, no, let me tell you something. I was working two jobs then because I was the morning business reporter at Carol. Were you living in San Francisco? Sorry. I was in San Francisco. So I mm-hmm. would get up at, you know, 245 in the morning. I'd go get to the, the station at five. I would work there for three or four hours. I'd run in Pacific Heights to just keep my sanity. And then I would go to my day job, which was the, was the column. And I remember Jim called me. I had a conversation with him. I'll never forget the conversation. He said he's starting this thing. And my first question to him was, how are you going to deal with the conflict of interest? And he, the, you know, the perceived conflict of interest. Got it. And he said, I've already contacted the Securities Exchange Commission. Yeah, he just and knew. He, he had already, smart. He is very smart. Yep. So he already went down that road and he, uh, he had everything. And at that point, I have to tell you, when the, when the internet was coming of age. It Dude, was you were there front row, row, first fucking row. I, I was at the, listen, I was a print guy. I had that column for 10 years in San yeah. Francisco. Yeah. I was getting burnt out and I was getting a little bored. And, you know, now the internet, they were able to start, you know, seeing things. They could see the clicks and who was reading your stuff or not. But what was interesting was when Jim finally, I was looking to either go to CNBC or the street.com. Those were the two places I was thinking I needed to change. Uh-huh. And the CNBC was looking at a possibly a joint deal with the Wall Street Journal where they could hire someone like me. And then there was the street. And I went and visited both. And I went to, went to Jim. And Jim, when you meet Jim, you know, in person and still you know, have him, still over maybe the years, for a second, maybe I've met him. But he's got a lot of energy. And he yeah. said, you know, did he, he spit on you? Was there take? any spit? No, no. In a COVID said, world, that would have been a bad thing. He said, what's it going to take? He, 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 he gave me a package that was really, that I really liked. And we decided to do the, to do the deal. And I would have kicked myself. I kept saying, if this is a, a success and I'm staying back, I'm going to kick myself for not having taken the job. And what's interesting is when I made that transition, I was one of the first mainstream Dude, guys to go put online. That's what I'm saying. Like, I'm starting to hedge fund. I'm going, it gave a credibility. Like, that's when I was like, fuck, dude, I'll cut all my subscriptions. They, I, got, I got real money. They thought I was nuts. Because you had flow. You had flow. Well, yeah. You had flow of all the tech fraud. So I I could ask you, I mean, I hate to take you back in the old world, but we have plugged your business. So let's, the biggest fraud you've ever seen. No, no, obviously we've got Enron and we've got stuff, but like you have seen fraud. You have seen things that people shouldn't see. You have seen things that people, like what people will do to cheat people is sickening. You've seen it. You've tried to warn people. Is it worse I mean, is it harder to be the person that like, warn, like, how do you deal with that? 
Well, I don't know that it's worse in the sense that people say sometimes the only companies they want to short are frauds. Mm -hmm. I think that's really hard. And I think that's a real hard focus. Now, it works for some people. From our vantage point, we view it very differently. We think you stumble on a fraud. Hmm. You don't. You, you don't necessarily. You can't latch onto a story. A Got it. Uh, companies. Human nature creates a fraud. Companies get you know hooked on the uh, on the aggressiveness of some uh, of trying to meet numbers, and then they can be sort of pushed into whether it's legal or Ill- illegal fraud. Uh, and and I think that's more like it. That's why you tend to look for failing business models or looking for different types of managers. You know, if you talk to Don, he'd say the last thing we're going to ever do is a quote unquote accounting, aggressive accounting story. No one cares about those. The world has changed. You know, you use that as a, as a piece, as a piece of the puzzle, not the entire, you know, so, so to pull off a fraud and and there's lots of them, but to pull it off, what is usually a thing? So you stumble upon it. Is it the founder or can someone do it beyond without the founder knowing? Well, we haven't done as many frauds to be honest. Got what it. I okay. there, uh, it's not our the focus, but I will tell you, cultural the culture historically, culture comes from the top. Uh-huh. The culture, you know, if you ask me, you say, wh- wh- where do you look for the motive? You can easily look for the motive in the proxy statement. So, if you really, when I go to the proxy statement, I immediately search for bonus or or incentive. And I start going down to see what's the incentive program and how are these guys incentivized? How easy is it for them to make, uh, to make the numbers? Uh, you know, how, how are they paid relative to peers? And that's where you start getting into, you know, the motive of if there is something, why were they incentivized to do it? Yeah. And uh, so that's typically the first stop if you're, if you're looking for the reason and for the culture of the company. Uh-huh. What was the most, like, in the day? Was it Learnout and House Speed? Like, what was the one that just the bottom fell out when it finally fell out? Because you used to do accounting stuff. Was it that one? Or what was, like, the one that you're like, fucking prick? I know Overstock was something that picked you. No, no, no. For, for, for me, you know, everybody has their one or two. Yeah. And I was involved in uh, Learnout in the early days. They were but like the a speech recognition old, company or something? Speech recognition, which, by the way, ultimately was bought by Nuance Communications. Oh, well, but it was, I remember Nuance. But the one that resonated for me and will always be, quote unquote, mine, mm-hmm. will be a company that I'll always talk about. And it goes way back. A company called Media Vision. Oh, fuck. And Media yeah. Vision. In the 90s. Remember them? That was a, they made sound cards. Uh-huh. And then they made the, you know, they were making sound that you could incorporate into your, you know, cards that you could incorporate sound into your computer. Creative Labs was their big uh, competitor, you know, where you have speakers, you had systems so you could get that stuff going. Uh-huh. And the best part of that entire story was that in the end, what we found was they literally were recognizing revenue on products when the parts for the products on which the revenue is being recognized were literally on an extremely slow boat from China. So they had worked out a deal with their contract manufacturer to be able to create several sets of books. So they could basically just, so if the contract manufacturer had the revenue, that was their revenue. They, and they could, they could recognize the revenue before the products were ever built. And that the risk being eventually a cycle hit. So what, like, I'm not an accounting person. So how is, so when does it catch up with them? Well, it caught up with them just because their businesses, as things were getting, uh, getting stretched and as people were starting to raise questions about their accounting and, you know, I was out there regularly writing about it. What happened in that case was that was a classic example where 
employees came to me. And while the original idea came from short sellers, when I took it on the reporting and started reporting it, you started having employees who were fired who had kept some of their um, some of the books and and made copies of them. And when one or two people came to me with those 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 documents, the first thing I thought was that was that they were doctored. And when I or I thought I was being set up because you knew the CEO would have loved to have seen something bad happen to me. Um, and so it, it literally was a situation where people were so pissed at the CEO that, and the way they were treated and the way they were fired that they figured, I remember, never forget this one guy who was lower on the totem pole and the company said, if they're taking me down, I'm taking the company down. And it was one of those beautiful situations. And by the way, the CEO and the CFO of that company both went to prison. And, uh, are they out yet? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Long time ago, but, but that was an aggressive culture. It was a very aggressive culture. Whew. Dude, you have seen things. Um, and now you're chilling on the beach. Hair looks good. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and you had a recent panic. You had open heart surgery. I had, uh, I had a, a big surgery, uh, which is amazing. Can we talk about, about it? Cause I, today. I, we both have had health problems. Yeah. So, yeah, so tell me. Yeah. You have, yeah. So small. three weeks ago today, three weeks ago today, mm-hmm. I was in Cleveland for this, you know, we had, we had planned this surgery. It's something I'd been researching for years. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for, since my mid twenties, I knew I had a valve issue with my, my aortic valve, but over the years I've been watching it and I had, we thought I had something called a bicuspid valve. Most people have tricuspid valves. 2% of the population has a bicuspid valve. And if you have a bicuspid valve, you're more prone to have an aneurysm of your uh, ascending aorta. And, um, it turns out I had, uh, um, I ended up having to have my aortic valve replaced, the root of my aorta replaced mm-hmm. my, um, my ascending aorta, which is the, the, the beginning where it pumps, the blood pumps out of your heart and goes up before it goes back down through your body that had to be repaired with Dacron. Mm-hmm. So I put a bunch of Dacron in me. And then when they did an angiogram, they, every time you have, if you have an open heart surgery, they're always going to do an angiogram just to make sure since they're in there that there's no other problems, you know, that you don't have any blockage. It turns out I had one uh-uh. uh, wayward artery. So I ended up also having a single bypass. So all of this was done by an absolutely amazing surgeon whose name is Lars Svensson. And Lars He's runs Swedish or Norwegian. Listen, he runs the Heart and Vascular Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. Cleveland is, is the yeah, number one best. heart hospital. Yeah. He, it was an amazing experience. I went in there, and I have to tell you, I was on the heart-lung machine about an hour and 15 minutes, which is considered very fast for the surgery. They did, I mean, I'm sitting here not having, you know, any major pain. Wow. Uh, my, even though I have a 10-inch scar on my chest. Mm-hmm. Where is it on the chest? It. Like the, in the middle? Straight in the middle, yeah. all the way down. And, uh-huh. and then I had a, uh, my, my back um, was probably what hurt the most from the surgery for the first the, the week pressure, or two. The uh, pressure. Th- you know what it is? When they spread your ribs yeah. apart, that pushes something. Yeah. But this, this place was such a great team and everyone was working together. Surprise you can't was- just order this on Amazon. So you're saying Amazon doesn't do this. <laughs> <laughs> the cloud and Amazon hasn't solved this yet. So you had to go to yeah. fucking Cleveland. So, so, so we had the surgery. The, the recovery's going well. I had a complication. Um, unrelated to the heart, ironically, and that was, and you'll appreciate this, uh, not to get, be t- too much TMI, um, so to speak, but um, at post-surgery, some people have a situation with the bowels, 
And in my case, this is cancer too. Concern. Like I found out about my block bowels, cancer people get this from the drugs. So, well, so you had the complication. It, it's so painful. I had the complication where the, my oh. bowels wouldn't wake up after surgery. That's a scary. So I'm sitting there. So I'm in, I'm in, and, and day three was my night. Three was my night from hell in the hospital. Oh, it's where I learned there. to love nurses because yep. what they had to do. Yep. Uh, and I, I mean, I was getting out of bed every five seconds here. I had my, you know, I, my, my stomach and I, I mean, anyway, I'm getting out of bed every five seconds in the middle of the night. Thankfully, a very kind nurse overlooked everything she was having to deal with at that moment. But what they did was this, is they had to determine whether I had blocked bowels. So what they do is about day three after heart surgery, day, yeah. day from all three, the drugs. Day four, it's from all the drugs. Well, the, the drugs, I, you know, fentanyl every, yeah. every six minutes, yeah. you can hit the fentanyl button, yeah. right? Yeah. So, and I'm, and by the way, I'm not on any pain drugs anymore. Yeah, I take Tylenol before yeah. I go to bed. So here's, here's the deal. They end up doing a CAT scan just to see if you're, um, how your heart is doing, how the repairs doing, right? They want to see that about three days after surgery. Since I was having the bowel problems, they said, Hey, let's go down to your, your abdomen, take a look down there. Mm-hmm. Well, my, my bowels are fine. But what they saw was an abscess near my prostate. So this is an incidental finding. They've never seen this as a complication. The reason this is a complication is if there's any potential infection, when you have a new heart valve for six weeks, mm-hmm. it could cause your valve to fail. So now they're saying, what are we going to do? And I'm going, I don't know what you guys are going to do, but it doesn't sound good to me. Mm-hmm. So what they ended up doing was, is they put something called a pick line in my arm, which I, I have right now. Yeah. They, they put it through your vein. Yeah, it doesn't really hurt. It's nope. just weird. It's weird. It's really fascinating it's how they do it. It's it's not that Isn't small. It like it they have an ultrasound it. machine. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy what they can do. No, it's a miracle. And so what I'm on is for six for six weeks or for another three weeks, I'm on a, I'm on a drip IV. Yeah, I uh, twice it. a day. Mm-hmm. Of something called uh, something that takes that, that, that protects my heart. So do you have that little squeeze ball that you like that you have to attach twice a day? Little little ball of. Well, no. No, they wouldn't give me that. Oh. It, it's not covered by my insurance. So what oh. we have instead is an old-fashioned gravity-led oh, drip it. line, and my wife. And so it comes down, and my wife has to attach it, and she has to, you know, she pumps the saline oh, into me. That's <laughs> tough. I had this. I had a little bit better tech. Yeah. Oh my god! So, so you're you know, you had better tech. I would have loved to have had that tech. I got to tell you that now that I haven't had anybody that I've met that had this bowel thing. You know, I, I have no. I have no contacts for cancer or heart surgery. I sat at the, I, Ellen was there. I sat on my bed after like just, and I looked at her, I go, I can't, I can't take the pain. I can't, I've never, I didn't know how to, I didn't know where it was. I couldn't like pinpoint it. I couldn't explain it. It just felt like I was broken. Like I never, you it, have, you, it was that kind of pain where you go, I'm never going to feel good again. Like it was so deep that you just forgot what feeling good looked like, like felt like. Because it was twenty four seven, like the pill, the the, the six, this every ten minute whatever drug I was pushing didn't work, you know. It's oh, terrible. Yeah, so you had the same that thing. It's scary. I had something I didn't have as bad as you, but I will tell you that that night in the hospital, and then you know, hospital beds are very uncomfortable, oh, and and the and the gown they put on you, like I, I, there's the no Lulu in the hospital. You just basically lose all sense of modesty. You just yeah. basically, it doesn't matter. And, but I will tell you that night when I, that I had the bowel stuff, it was the night I said to myself, I don't ever want to go through this again. This yeah. is horrible. Yeah. And um, the heart stuff was, you know, they still, they put tubes in you and they pull them out and it's, it's weird and all this kind of stuff. But um, 
but the Dow stuff is really tough. And uh, I, 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 I empathize with what you must have gone through, and I could see it in your your lack of tw- your lack of humor. I was very yeah. concerned about you. Um, well, I appreciate it. The uh, uh, luckily for me, it's just it's been a win. You know, down twenty pounds, different outlook. Kind of the virus has kept me home. Uh, yeah. It seems like I just get lucky. You, so you're through the other side and you're walking about and, and, and working. Well, I have to be careful not to be exposed to anybody. Um, so you're quarantined. Uh, I mean, for, yeah. Yeah. For another three weeks at least. And, um, and except I went, you know, heck I went to the, to the urologist yesterday at UCSD in Hillcrest. It was absolutely dead. Empty. I was the only people in the building, yeah. the only people in the building. And now we're starting to do telemedicine. So yeah, the, I just got telemedicine. My MRI came back. Uh, she telemedicine me that my MRI, my Crohn's was got like it was all telemedicine. This is like and I'm it was a dream. I said, by the way, mind. honey, and I didn't say honey, but by the way, Barb, uh, <laughs> I'll pay you a hundred dollars extra to do this for the rest of my life, like uh, each uh, each session. Right? Like, let's make up a price. Like, this isn't about healthcare. Like, the fact that I could talk to you without waiting an hour, going through a maze and like feeling like shit and parking. And you know what I mean? Let's make this a thing. I I think, look, I think that my cardiologist is now working from home, doing all of his, his appointments, telemedicine. So Scripps has a system set up uh, in San Diego and UCSD, my urologist follow-up is going to be uh, telemedicine. It's all going to be virtual. Mm-hmm. Um, they have the, uh, the apps. It t- I think some of it could be a little easier and a little better. Sure. Sure. I think they have day one. to work on, but yeah. this is, yeah, this is day one. We're right in the early, the early days of it. Yeah. No, the greatest um, thing, you yeah. know, how home, you know, why work from home is a thing? Cause lawyers hate it. The only people this is making <laughs> miserable are lawyers. They're like, what? I don't have nine assistants to bill somebody. I got to do this myself. Like they're used to just screaming at people in their own little firms, you know, with rat packs and doctors are handling this. Like everybody's handling they this are. well. I think most people are, I look, young people are really struggling. Like I look at my son, he's so stressed. Like he's not used to, you know, they have their Snapchat and stuff, but they're, but they're just not used to being alone. I, I found that with, with, so it used to be with instant messaging and now, you know, certainly with social media, I'm never alone. Uh And, uh, I've, I found that, um, uh, you know, working from home, once you have it set up, you know, you and I have the ability to have it set up and, you know, we know what we need, but um, I, I, I'll tell you something. When I went back to CNBC, one of the hardest things was to actually be chained to an office mm-hmm. after having been at home. I'd find it very hard to be in an office. Um, certainly, I, it's not going to happen because of my age at this point, but I would find it very hard to be in an office. And I feel I'm more productive. I'm very productive at home. You have to be your own. You have to watch out for yourself. But you're self-motivated. Look at your career. You're self-motivated. We know who's going to be successful from home. So let's wrap up with the market. Have you ever seen anything this fast, this crazy? It's felt this bad different times, but you know this is different because, and I don't want to ever say, you know, I I know, I know. This this time is different is is, is the four most expensive words or it's the most expensive phrase in the English English language when it comes to the market. But, we know that we don't know. And what we know is that nobody knows. And we know that everybody's going to try to predict it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen some interesting, you know, even today, uh, some interesting stuff out about how the markets never uh, bottom until the economy bottoms. And this economy is certainly not bottomed <laughs> by any means yet. So, uh, you know, n- you, don't know, you don't know how to play it. And everybody has their opinion. 
and some people will be right. Some people will be partially right. Um, there will be levels of right. People who trade, I suspect, will make make and maybe lose a lot of money in the process. Sure. Um, it's it's just, I think it's impossible to know. This is not like anything we've seen because we've never, you know what it's like, Howard? It's like the whole world just had an earthquake. Right. It's like and a Richter so, scale yeah. 10 whole world. Like Jeff Mackey said, there's never been zeros. Like major companies are putting zeros down as their top line. So there's no, there's no, uh, when you, you're a startup, everybody's a startup. And it's, it's, it, that's one way of looking at it. Um, I feel it's, you know, it's, it's, it's partially very depressing. So I try not to yeah. see, I try to avoid the, the most depressing commentary on it because I just don't need it. Um, yeah. what's going to happen is going to happen. We yeah. can't change it. Yeah. Uh, there's certain political figures you and I have to, you know, but we're now beyond that. that. Like they can't, no, no, uh, Gandhi would, no one could solve this, especially a country our no, size. Just, uh, you know, obviously there could be better leadership. But that's the problem. Yeah, I agree. There could be better leadership the giving the country a context. Hey, we've got a crisis people. It's unfair. It's all unfair. Life's unfair, but guess what? You know, we're lucky. We have a, everybody can distance themselves. We live in this huge land mass. Like talk to people like they're fucking adults, not like they're children. Howard, you can't mark this stuff to the stock market. You can't. No, I agree. When, look, when Good Trump, point. When Good Trump point. Saying, Great point. You can't. This is not about when Trump was telling people, he was ridiculing, Good point. chiding people for not being in the market, not being on. That was highly irresponsible. The most, the, the most irresponsible thing he did was cheerlead on the way up. And, and his son deleted that tweet all in like 30% yeah. ago. Like, of all the irresponsible things, this country doesn't need people cheerleading, uh, investing. It's the one, the one purest thing that we have is the stock market and he shat all over it. Yeah. So I agree with you there. And so what can you, I mean, as a, the market moves so quickly, are you allowed to share what a couple of your favorite ideas going into this that were like just uh, tinglers or no? No, I'm, I, we're, we're, we're trying to, I can't use specific names, Got it. but I, we're, because, you know, obvious reasons for our customers, yeah. we're trying to find the right ideas. What we're trying to do at this point is, you know, last week we put out a list of some names that if the market bounces, these might be some of the older names we've done that will be worth a second look. We're, we put together our distress screen, our customer financing, our consumer, you know, yeah. companies that do uh, consumer financing screens. We're trying to refine those screens and we have other, you know, names that we've been involved with where we're seeing things just getting considerably worse. Yep. Uh, some of the stocks are bouncing back with gusto and yep. they make no, it makes no sense. Yep. Um, uh, but I think that's the opportunity. And some people say, look, some people say, how could you short stocks with the market having collapsed like this? And I would say, look, three years ago, there are companies that only got worse since three years ago, but their stocks were pulled up because of the market not because of their businesses. Mm -hmm. And therein lies another level of opportunity um, as it relates to where we are today. Uh, and you have, to re, you have to reassess and you have to try to you know, target uh, those companies. Really good advice. Okay, well, this was a treat. Um, the, I'm glad you're healthy-er. And uh, it's nice that you're in San Diego. There's no place like San Diego. 
it's uh, it's a great place to be. And uh, do you see Mackie at all? I had him on before. Do you ever see him, or you just chat? Well, with you know, him? we live we live literally like three houses away from one another, and we never see each other. We yeah. never see each other. Yeah. He's just always trying. I find these golf balls like you know they're like they're like outside like like he's trying to break windows in my house and stuff <laughs> like that. And then I hear. I hear this basketball, like, you know, it's like, you know, I'm trying to sleep and I hear basketballs going and I know that coming from his kids, you know, from his, from him outside with his, with his son. And I want to just scream, you know, Mackie, come on, cut it out. It's nine o'clock. Guys like me go to sleep at nine o'clock, even though he wakes up earlier than I do. Um, uh, we, we, we don't see each other as much as we should, but uh, we'll both. We'll say hi. You can listen to each other's podcasts and go out and uh, I think yours was better. I just have said that now publicly. It's not Jeff's fault. It's just like, fuck, Jeff, you know, Jeff's not as interesting as you. I mean, his meltdown is not interesting to me anymore. He's so fun. Just remember, Jeff's Twitter feed is one of the best. Yeah, he's great. That's why I had him on. He's so thoughtful. Um, All right. So uh, great to have you. I'm glad you're feeling better. It's fun that social media keeps us connected because I haven't seen you in a couple of years. And, uh, I am. Uh, I feel good to know that uh, you're coming through to the other side, and uh, wow. we'll talk to you soon. Howie, it's great talking to you. I hope to see you in San Diego uh, this summer. Yep. Take care, pal. Cheers. What do you think, Legend? Oh, I remember watching this guy on TV. The enemies he created. Whew, the Surus. He called Surus, and you know, <laughs> like the Surus, he would bring on himself. People just yelled at him all day. He just had that skin that was just like, I'm just doing my job, people. I'm a journalist. Right. Like he was a journalist. He was like, I don't mean to tell you bad news, but like these guys are criminals. Right. No one wants to hear, you know what I mean? In the stock market, no one wants to hear other than the narrative. The narrative is the narrative up until the right. And he was always that guy who's like, dude, that, I mean, I get you, but this is a fucking fraud. I'm you know what I mean? This, I'm not making this stuff up. That's yeah, I'm not making is. this stuff up. So anyways, fun to hear from him. Uh, old timer. All right. Wraps up another episode of Panic with Friends. That was a couple of good friends. Hopefully that helps everybody. But uh, I know the news isn't as good as people want to hear, but that's not my job. All right. See everybody soon.